Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 127, Nutrition and Supplements in Breast Cancer. This podcast episode is actually the audio recording of a talk I did a couple of weeks ago focused on nutrition and supplements in breast cancer. And if you'd like to watch the whole presentation, that is up on my YouTube channel. But I know that some people prefer to listen this way and the audio stands alone. So you don't need the visuals, but I know that sometimes that can be helpful as well. So you have both ways that you can take a listen. This presentation is part of our monthly breast cancer survivorship education series. And each month we cover a different topic that is relevant to breast cancer survivors. On this episode, I break down what you need to know about nutrition and supplements. We talk about it all. We talk about plant-based, vegan, intermittent fasting, soy, dairy, different types of supplements, things like collagen peptides, things like vitamin D, melatonin, medications for hot flashes, vitamins during chemotherapy, you name it, it's here. Now, this is by no means a comprehensive conversation because that would take us hours and hours and hours. But I think this should give you an overview and hopefully really helpful information that you can bring back to your medical team and have a conversation with them. And with that, let's get right into it. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. So thank you everyone for being here. So this is the third installment in our breast cancer survivorship series. And today we're talking about nutrition and supplement use. Um, the other ones that we've done are skin, hair, and beauty, as well as hot flashes and joint pain. And they are all up on our YouTube channel. So I will, um, or my YouTube channel rather, I'll link to that at the end. So um, you can catch those if you missed it. So what we're going to talk about today, we're going to break down the talk into nutrition and then to supplements. So nutrition is we're going to talk about all different types of things. And I will do a Q&A at the end. Um, but we're talking about processed foods, carcinogens, uh, processed meats, sugar, sweetened beverages, alcohol, keto versus plant based, intermittent fasting, soy and dairy. In terms of supplements, we're going to touch on a bunch of things, including calcium and vitamin D turmeric, collagen peptides, melatonin, vitamins during chemotherapy, and much more. So definitely stay tuned. Um, you know, we'll kind of touch on everything. So, you know, the first question, probably the most common question I get is, what should I be eating? I either am newly diagnosed with breast cancer, or I am a breast cancer, you know, survivor, I finished active treatment, or I'm years out from treatment, and what should I be doing? And so on the screen here, you'll see the 2020 American Cancer Society guideline on diet and physical activity for cancer prevention. And at the top, they talk about the importance of being physically active, which we will be talking about um, at a different talk in a couple of months. But I draw your attention to the red box. And so they say, follow a healthy eating pattern at all ages. 
And I think what's important here is that it's at all ages. And this is something that this isn't just for cancer survivors and thrivers, but this is for starting with our children. And this is for all of us um, to not only keep the cancer made from coming back, reduce the incidence of a new cancer um, and just stay, stay healthy. So a healthy eating pattern is going to include foods that are high in nutrients um, in amounts that, you know, help and achieve and maintain a healthy body weight, a variety of vegetables, beans, legumes, lentils, fruits, and whole grains. And then they do recommend limiting um, red and processed meats, sugar-sweetened beverages, and highly processed foods. And we're going to talk about why those things are best to limit. And they also say it's best not to drink alcohol, but that people who do choose to drink alcohol should limit their consumption to no more than one drink per day for women and two drinks per day for men. Um, and I'm going to show you why our, my recommendation is typically about three drinks per week on average, and, and we'll go into all of that. So talking about processed food, so what is a processed food? So processed food is any food that has undergone any changes to its natural state. So heating, freezing, mixing, packaging, and you know, you might say, well, every food is processed and, and they are right. Essentially, all foods are going to be processed to some degree, but some are more processed than others. This may include the addition of other ingredients such as preservatives, flavors, um, additives, salt, sugars, fats, all sorts of things. So I like this graph that I have here, this chart rather, and it breaks it down. So all the way to the left, you'll see the unprocessed or minimally processed foods. Um, so these are, you know, fresh or dry frozen vegetables or fruit, grains, legumes, meat, fish, eggs, nuts and seeds. So there's really very little done to them. Um, you know, they've maybe removed some of the inedible parts, but they're not adding substances to the original food. And then as you progress, you have this increasing level of processing. So you have processed culinary ingredients, then you have processed foods, and then ultra-processed foods are also known as highly processed foods. Um, and as you can see, with each kind of growth along that chart, they have an increasing level of processing. And really, the food is kind of nothing like it started from. Um, and ultra-processed foods include artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, so that you can promote shelf stability, right? So these are things you kind of get in the aisles of the grocery store. Um, if anyone can mute, thank you. Uh, preserve texture, increase palatability, and there's multiple processing steps involved. So these are kind of your ready to eat foods that have minimal prep and they tend to be low in fiber and nutrients. And, and what's crazy is there's a study that showed that ultra processed foods comprise about 60% of total calories in the US diet. And as you can imagine, that is not really good for us on a, on a global level, as well as on an individual level. So why is it in terms of breast cancer? Why is this a problem? I'm not going to go through the nuances of these studies, but just to say that there are multiple studies out there, including this one, that have shown that women um, who consume ultra-processed foods have a higher risk of breast cancer. In some cases, it's been linked with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. In some cases, it's been linked to all different types of breast cancer. Um, and very often, I think when people think about processed foods, we're thinking about processed meats. But in this study, actually, they also included, you know, packaged savory snacks and those ready-to-eat heat foods, cakes and desserts and um, fruit juice beverages and cereals. And so, Really just to say that there are so many things that are processed and it can be hard, but trying to kind of live on this 
group one category, group two category as, as much as you can. Here's another study um, that looked at ultra processed foods and cancer risk. And they showed that a 10% increase in the proportion of ultra processed foods in the diet was associated with an increase in overall and breast cancer. Um, and so it really tells us that, you know, we, I always get asked, well, why is there more cancer in, in the, you know, why are we seeing more and more breast cancer? And I think that this certainly what we eat is, is a big factor. Um, now, how does this actually happen, right? So how do these ultra processed foods increase cancer risk? So a couple of ways. They may increase cancer risk through kind of their obesogenic properties. So they do increase obesity. And we know that that's a breast cancer risk factor. Exposures to food additives and contaminants. So as the food goes through transformations, whether it be chemical or biological or physical to generate this final processed product, the chemical structure of the food actually changes. And that creates these contaminants such as trans fat and acrylamide, which have higher cancer risk. Diets that are high in processed foods have um, tend to be higher in um, higher fat content, higher in saturated and trans fat content, and lower in fiber and protein. And a lot of additives have been shown to have carcinogenic properties, including sodium nitrate, titanium dioxide, and then the other thing that's really interesting is that the substances that come from food packaging are almost indirect contaminants, but they are thought to have endocrine disrupting effects, meaning they're you know, affecting your hormone levels, and, and that could play a role as well. This chart I like, um, this is from the International Agency for Research on Cancer, and they have these different categories of carcinogens. Um, and I urge you to go look all the way to the right. Um, and these are this category one are things that are carcinogenic to humans. Sunlight, so we know, right? We should be wearing sunscreen, wood dust, tobacco, alcoholic beverages, and processed meat. And this is gets very debatable. People get really angry sometimes when we say that these are carcinogens, but you can see it right here that these are WHO, IARC proven carcinogens. Red meats is a category 2A, so probably carcinogenic, as well as working as a barber or a hairdresser, night shift work, and high temperature frying. So, and, and then it, you can kind of goes on um, further. So let's kind of talk about the meat a little bit. Um, so red meat and processed meat. So at the top here, we know that processed meats, we just said our group one classification. So this is salami, sausages, and bacon. Um, and then red meats um, are that chewy, so they probably cause cancer. And I like, I put this here to stress that lamb is considered a red meat. A lot of people think it's not, but it is. So pork and beef and lamb are all red meats. Same thing, sorry, and same thing with pork. A lot of people will say that pork is not red meat, but, but it is. Um, so shifting gears a little bit to sugar-sweetened beverages, um, we want to limit consumption of these. They also have been associated with increased breast cancer risk. And the thing is, there's the statistics are something like one out of every two Americans consumes a sugar-sweetened beverage every day. And I put these on there because a lot of times you may not think that this iced coffee is um, sweetened or the Starbucks drink. And even the tonic water. And a lot of these actually do have sugar. Uh, so can someone mute, please? Thank you. 
Um, so you have to be careful with what you are, like if you're ordering a coffee from Starbucks, they will add sweetener without you even realizing it. If you're doing it from the app and things like that. So you just want to be careful about what you're ordering and really looking at the ingredients. So let's talk about alcohol a little bit. So alcohol, as we said, is a category one carcinogen. And the way that alcohol increases breast cancer risk is really not completely well understood, but some proposed mechanisms include a change in hormone levels, so increased estrogen and progesterone levels, inflammation, DNA damage. And so when alcohol is metabolized, it is converted into acetaldehyde, which can damage DNA, uh, insulin resistance, and it also is metabolized by the liver, so it can affect the liver as well. Um, and the amount of alcohol someone drinks over time, not the type of alcohol, is really the most important factor. So a lot of people say, well, I drink wine, I don't drink hard alcohol, and, and it honestly, it does not matter. Um, and then the categories are light drinking, which is less one drink or less per day, and that has been shown to increase the incidence of breast cancer by 9%. So that is an, a new diagnosis of breast cancer, whereas light drinking, which is half a drink per day or less increases by 4%. Now, again, this is for a diagnosis of breast cancer, but we really kind of extrapolate that data to when we think about breast cancer recurrence, because we just don't have those that great data in that space. And so this is why I recommend to people to limit to about three drinks per week, because, you know, for an increase in 4% is, is really not that significant, but an increase by 9%, you know, can be significant. And I say that because when we have a glass of wine, we all know how it's poured and it's usually maybe a heavy pour and maybe you, well, okay, pour me a little bit more. And so that one drink can end up into two drinks. Now you're at that 20% risk. And so um, this is why I kind of say on average, keeping it to about three drinks per week. And I really think it's important here to highlight that it's on average. So if you're on vacation, you have a part birthday party, a wedding, whatever it is, you're going to drink more, maybe. That's fine. I want people always to get away from having that one or two drinks a night with dinner and really, you know, being kind of mindful about how often you're drinking. But if there's some weeks where it's four to five drinks and then there's some weeks where it's none at all, I think that's definitely okay. I know that there are some oncologists that tell people to drink one drink a day. And, and, you know, I think you have to take this data and take the recommendations and decide what's right for you. Um, some people want to mitigate their risk however much they can. And other people say, you know what, this is something that I enjoy doing and I'm going to drink a little bit more and I'm that's okay. You know, so you have to figure out kind of where you fall. This is a study about keto versus plant-based, and this comes up a lot. And this was a study published um, earlier this year by two colleagues at Sloan Kettering and um, Dr. Iyengar and Dr. Sean. They're really wonderful. They work a lot on nutrition and cancer. And I, it's a, what I put this graph up to show you is they tried to see, you know, which diet is better for cancer growth. And they showed that the green is the plant, uh, plant-based diet, and then the kind of light blue here is the ketogenic diet. So remember, when we think about keto, it ends up being more fat, more tends to be, you could kind of be clean with the meat, but it is a lot more meat, it can raise your cholesterol. And what they showed was that there was 
a number of mechanisms that both pathways shared in terms of suppressing cancer growth. But the plant-based diet definitely had a lot more. It, uh, you know, it really had all these other things in green. So it decreased insulin-like growth factor, improving insulin resistance, improved fiber, um, which decreased intense intestinal transit time. Um, we know that the gut makes it, you know, it's involved in cancer in some way. It reduced inflammation. And so the idea is that, you know, when I get asked a lot, well, should I be plant-based or should I be keto? You know, I think the key is to eat more plants. You don't have to define yourself by a particular diet, but we know that eating more plants is going to have benefits. What about intermittent fasting? So this comes up a lot, and I think a lot of people, you know, use this as a way to control what they're eating. If they're trying to lose weight, it can be helpful. It has been shown to improve insulin resistance, um, and so intermittent fasting is popular. And there was a study, and the reason I bring this up is there was a study um, that kind of occasionally, it was published a couple of years ago, but it occasionally gets circulated, um, and you know, it, the, the study said that if you fast for less than 13 hours a night, you have an increase in breast cancer recurrence. And so when it gets circulated, there's a lot of buzz about it and people kind of get very upset because they, you know, they're not fasting for less than 13 hours a night. Um, but here's the thing. What they showed in the study was one, there was no increase in, in the risk of dying from breast cancer, number one. And the way that they got this information, they surveyed patients um, and they basically asked them at three different time points, hey, how often did you fast for? Um, so they weren't following them and watching what they were eating. They asked them to recall their fasting, you know, at, at this time point. I mean, I can't even remember when I stopped eating the night before, let alone six months ago. So I think that that's not really the most accurate way to do this. And so for that, I, I don't really feel like the study is a great one. And I also don't routinely recommend this to my patients. With that said, if you want to fast, go for it. I mean, I think it's helpful. I loosely do it and it's been helpful for me. Um, so talk to your doctor and definitely something you can try, but I don't recommend it strictly from a breast cancer outcome perspective, meaning I don't tell people if you do intermittent fasting or if you fast for 13 hours a night, you know, per night that your cancer, you have a lower risk of recurrence because we really just don't have that strong, robust information. And lastly, people say, well, should I go vegan? And I like this cartoon. Uh, for lunch, I had a bottle of root beer, a bag of potato chips, and two candy bars. And giving up red meat is easier than I thought. And I make this point to say that you don't have to go vegan, uh, but you can also be a very unhealthy vegan. There's a restaurant in uh, my next to my town called Freakin' Vegan, and everything on there is just process, process vegan stuff. Um, and you're eating it and I've tried it and it's processed and it's not really that good. Um, and so the idea is that you, the most important thing is you want to be, um, you, you want to focus on eating the whole foods and the plant-based. So you can, you can technically be vegan by eating chips and candy bars, but you know, that's not going to be helpful. What about soy? So I talk about this a lot and this comes up all the time. And so soy we know contains isoflavones, which are plant-based estrogens, but isoflavones do not increase breast cancer risk or breast density, and they may reduce breast cancer risk. Um, now the type of soy that you're eating matters. Um, 
you know, we have unprocessed, which is your edamame, soybeans. Then we have minimally processed, which is kind of tofu, tempeh, soy milk. Then moderately processed is miso and soy yogurts. And then the highly processed is that soy protein isolate and textured soy protein. And so you really want to eat more of the unprocessed or minimally processed foods and kind of avoid um, the highly processed and moderately processed, I would say, do in, in moderation. And I should say this here. So soy protein isolate isn't all of that kind of fake meat. Um, so this is this Morningstar Farms veggie chicken nuggets. And I, if you look here, right, it, it looks kind of healthy. It's got 13 grams of protein. They're telling you it's 100% plant protein. It's got less fat than chicken nuggets. And so a lot of times people will say, oh, this is a really good alternative. And I'm not saying that it's not. But on the back, when you look at um, the active ingredients, the third ingredient is soy protein concentrate. So this is something that is a processed soy. And it's not something I would absolutely avoid, but I also wouldn't. Um, this may be something you have periodically. So I think, you know, really just looking at those ingredients um, and, you know, looking at what's not just the nutritional facts, but also what's the active ingredient. With dairy, the results are mixed. Um, there are a bajillion studies about dairy increases risk some say, um, and some dairy products we do think are kind of be likely better than others and my bottom line on this is that if you enjoy dairy consume it in moderation um, but you don't have to cut it out um, but also you know it does have cholesterol and so you want to be maybe you're not eating cheese with every meal um, and before we kind of switch gears to supplements I do want to say that what we eat impacts our mental health um, this is one of my favorite books. It's written by Uma Naidu. She is a psychiatrist and also a uh, culinary specialist. She's at Harvard Medical School. And she wrote this book called This Is Your Brain on Food. And it's all about how what we eat impacts not our mental health, depression, anxiety, and everything else. And it's a great book to read and you can pick the chapters. And if you are struggling, it'll kind of give you some foods and things to try to help. Um, obviously, it doesn't take away medications and therapy, but I, I think it can be really helpful. So the bottom line in nutrition is eat more of this, bright colors, lots of plants, but also enjoy this once in a while. It is okay to eat dessert. It is okay to have the cake to have a glass of wine. I don't want people to not have this because that brings us a lot of joy. And I will tell you, I enjoy a glass of wine and I love dessert. Um, and I also want people, and this talk isn't about that, but I think it's important to get rid of the guilt that comes with um, eating dessert and having a glass of wine. And what I hear very often from people is when they say, well, I, I just felt so guilty, I couldn't even enjoy it. And that really defeats the purpose. So enjoy it. And and it's good. And I think that it helps your mental health. It is, a, you know, you're with friends, you're with family, you're having this experience. And so um, that, that is really important as well. Okay, so let's talk supplements now. Now, when I posted about saying, what supplements do you guys want to know about? I mean, I got a 100 different supplements, and I can't cover them all. So I'm just going to pick some of the most common ones. And then in the Q&A at the end, we can answer some other questions. So why do people take supplements? This is a, a table, an article from a couple of years ago, and they 
surveyed people for why they took supplements. And the most common reason that people said was to improve overall health. Um, then they also said to maintain health, to supplement their diet, to boost their immune system, to increase energy, uh, heart health, and, and so forth. But the number one reason, um, so the most, like I said, the most common reason was to improve overall health. Um, so question is, do you need a supplement? And I get asked all the time, what supplement should I be taking? And I like this cartoon because there's so many supplements out there, right? What do you need to do? And do you really even need to do anything? So the one that I always, always recommend is vitamin D. Okay, so we know a couple of things. Number one, women with low levels of vitamin D have a higher risk for breast cancer. Vitamin D levels um, that are greater than 30 at the time of breast cancer diagnosis have been linked to better survival from breast cancer. Um, and there are definitely foods that are rich in vitamin D, um, different fish, and a lot of um, some products are actually fortified with vitamin D and like yogurts and orange juice and soy milk. But it can be hard to get it from food. It can also be hard to get vitamin D from the sun, especially in the winter months. And, you know, we're wearing sunscreen and vitamin D is important, not just for breast cancer, but also for calcium absorption, for bone health, for our immune system, for cardiovascular health. So really make sure it's important to make sure that you're not low. In terms of how much vitamin D do you need, um, the guidelines vary. Um, some guidelines say 20. Some, I mean, in terms of your level is optimal. Some say 20, some say 30. I recommend 30 or greater for breast cancer survivors, just given what we know and given the current data. There's not one way to replete vitamin D. Some people will do a weekly dose for 8 to 12 weeks, and they'll go... Um, Others will do a daily dose. You know, there's no right answer. Um, and in, there's also no right answer in terms of how to serve, how often to follow vitamin D. Um, and so I think that your doctor um, has a, ha, knows how to do it for them and what works for their practice, but there's really no one way to do it. Another thing that comes up a lot is K2. And do you need, if you're taking vitamin D, do you also need K2? Um, and vitamin K2 may help with bone density. Um, there's not in terms of breast cancer, but it may help with the bone density, which we know vitamin D is really important for. Um, but the data on this are inconclusive. So something that, you know, is you could try, but not something that we routinely recommend because we don't have any great data for this. On the flip side, we know when we talk about calcium, um, we talk about vitamin D, we also talk about calcium. And the recommendation for calcium is about 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams a day a little bit closer to 1,200 if you um, are on medications that can affect your bones, if you already have osteopenia or osteoporosis, if you're postmenopausal, um, and it's going to be a combination of diet and supplements. Now, at least half, ideally, at least half of your calcium should come from a dietary source, and I'll show you what foods are high in calcium. Um, it's not that the supplements are less effective because they're not, but they may have more adverse events. So it's been shown that higher doses of calcium may increase kidney stones and cardiovascular risk. You would really need to take a lot of calcium, but, you know, there's, the data is kind of mixed on this. So I try to tell people, you know, see what you can get through your diet and whatever you're not getting through your diet, you want to supplement. The, the two common supplements that exist are calcium carbonate and calcium citrate. You want to be careful because the carbonate is better taken with meals. It's not as well absorbed on an empty stomach. 
It's also poorly absorbed if you're on a proton pump inhibitor or, or H2 blockers for acid reflux. If you're on protonics or pepsid, um, the calcium carbonate's not going to be absorbed as well. So then you might want to take the calcium citrate. So those are going to be the two different supplements that you can take. Uh, and often people say, well, I'm trying to eat more plants, but it's hard for me. I'm trying to limit dairy and it's hard for me to get a good plant-based source of calcium. So I put this up here to just highlight and you can screenshot this that there's so many great plant-based sources of calcium um soy-based foods beans lentils nuts seeds vegetables um and what i really like is if you get a plant milk um if that's what you're drinking that's fortified with calcium you can get almost 40 50 percent of your calcium intake um you know so what i'll do is i'll make smoothies with an almond milk that's fortified in calcium and then you're getting a really nice chunk of your calcium for that for the day this website is from Memorial Sloan Kettering, and I love this website. Um, I don't work at Sloan Kettering, as you all know, but um, this is my go-to. They have really created this incredible database and resource for herbs and botanicals and any other products. Um, and the, it's available for everybody. So if you just search Sloan Kettering about herbs, and you can put in there any supplement or any active ingredient, any herb that you want, and it has information for patients, information for doctors or providers, and it'll tell you like side effects, what you should be watch out for, should you take it if you're with breast cancer, and it's really, really a wonderful, wonderful resource. Let's talk now about collagen peptides. So, you know, I feel like this was a fad a little bit and everyone kind of started doing it, and my, myself included, I'll be honest. Um, what collagen peptides are is they are very small pieces of protein from animal collagen. So collagen makes up our cartilage, makes up our bone and skin. And as we age, we make less collagen. So the skin can become kind of lose its elasticity and, you know, can sag a little bit. Um, and also if we have excess sun exposure for smoking, drinking more, not sleeping, not exercises, collagen production can drop. So comes in, hey, let's take collagen peptides, let's supplement. And the thought is that maybe it, yes, it may improve skin elasticity, joint mobility, it may decrease joint pain. The problem with this is that the data is weak um, and it's unclear exactly what the supplement actually contains. Um, there've been reports of heavy metals in these supplements. Um, and, you know, and also the research is industry funded. So it's funded by the companies that make collagen. And so the question is, is there bias? You know, are these, are they really, you know, they're enticed to, to succeed and show a benefit. So these are all things to keep in mind. Um, in terms of breast cancer, and I, di I didn't put this in here, but I'll mention it, that there was a concern that came up, you know, a couple of years ago where there was a study that said metastatic breast cancer has higher levels of collagen. And so people kind of said, well, um, if I, I don't want to take collagen peptides because that's more collagen and that's going to feed the cancer. And that's never been a link. Because remember, our bodies make collagen on their own. Um, and so even by taking the supplement, you're, it's not necessarily going to go and say, well, I'm, this supplement's going to directly feed the cancer. So my take on it is if people find it helpful, you know, if you take it and you really notice a difference in your joints and your skin, your nails, 
and you want to try it and take it, go ahead. Um, on the other hand, if you don't find it helpful, you know, I, I would take it and I really honestly didn't notice a difference. And so I stopped. Um, I also stopped because I really am mostly plant-based and it's hard to find a plant-based collagen peptide. Um, cause again, it comes from animals. And so I didn't want to be doing that every day. Um, but just to show you, um, there are just to show you what foods contain collagen that's going to be on the left. That's typically your meats, your bones, gelatin, and what foods can boost collagen production. And I like this column a little bit better, um, because you can eat these high protein foods, um, zinc, shellfish, nuts, and seeds, and things with vitamin C. So these are all things that we like, um, things that are, you know, not processed and of protein and fruits and vegetables, and that can boost the collagen production, which we talked about declines when we don't take care of ourselves, um, you know, when we're not sleeping and drinking, and as we age to our collagen levels decline. Melatonin. Um, melatonin helps, is, is a hormone that is associated with the sleep-wake cycle, and it's a lot of people, you know, struggle with sleep, whether you're a breast cancer survivor or not. And taking this melatonin supplement can kind of regulate your sleep-wake cycle. So it's often used to help with sleep. Um, sometimes people feel that it actually makes them more sleepy, can cause headaches, dizziness, nausea. Um, but on the other hand, it can improve your sleep. And if it improves your sleep, your quality of life improves, your social and cognitive functioning improves. So I think that it is a good option for symptom management. Interestingly, it's been shown to block growth in breast cancer cells. So preclinically in cell lines, it may have anti-cancer effects. So we don't take melatonin solely for the purpose of reducing breast cancer risk. But if you're taking it for sleep, you know, there may be a benefit that is not clearly kind of defined yet. And what about turmeric? Um, sorry, this picture is kind of cut off here, but turmeric is a plant related to ginger that is grown in India and parts of Asia and Central America. It's also kind of major ingredient in curry powder. And the active ingredient of turmeric is curcuminoids and curcumin has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory and anti-cancer effects. So it may help with anxiety and depression, cognitive performance, joint pain, fatty liver disease. And um, what it can interact, um, there's a benefit for turmeric and cell lines and from a breast cancer perspective, but it can interact with certain chemotherapy drugs and tamoxifen. So we, to be safe, we kind of want to get turmeric through food, um, but definitely talk to your doctor if you want to try taking the supplement. And so what about vitamins during chemotherapy? Um, this was a study published a couple of years ago, and they looked at dietary supplement use during chemotherapy in patients with breast cancer, and they looked at their survival outcomes. And they found that antioxidant supplements, so vitamin A, C, and E, um, as well as some others, were associated with a higher risk of recurrence from breast cancer. Um, and this has kind of supported what we had been talking about all along, was really not taking vitamins or supplements during chemotherapy. Um, the thought is that the antioxidant effect could actually reduce the ability of the chemotherapy to cause cell death. Um, in this study, interestingly, people who just took a multivitamin, um, they, it did not impact their outcomes, which I think is important. Um, but a lot of the multivitamins have like high concentrations of vitamin A and C and E. And so I 
really try to have patients not take any vitamins and supplements during chemo um, unless there's a really clear reason to do so. Um, one of the questions that came up a lot was anything for mood changes. And so for fun, I just I literally put into Google natural supplements for mood changes. And these are all the things that came up. And so there's hundreds and thousands of these. And, you know, do any of them work? I mean, they all promise to work. They all have a ton of ingredients that may be helpful for mood. And I think I don't have one that I recommend, but I always tell people is if you want to take something, ask me or ask your doctor. And as long as, you know, we look at the ingredients and we think it's safe based on your cancer features and the medications that you're taking, I think it's always reasonable to try. Um, but there's not one that's kind of, this is what you need to take for sleep, or this is what you need to take for mood. So where do I start? Because there are many supplements out there and there's a whole market for breast cancer survivors. If you just search breast cancer supplements, you're going to get so many things. Um, but these are my kind of five, 10 tips, five tips for when evaluating for supplements. So number one, look at the active ingredients. I am always cautious about proprietary blends because they don't have to disclose to you what's in it and what the doses are. Look at the cost. So does the product justify the cost? You know, if something costs $100 per month, you got to think about that. Um, why are you taking the supplement? Where did you hear about it? Discuss it with your healthcare team. And then once you start taking it, you know, ask yourself, has it helped you? Kind of really question, like, that's what I did with the collagen peptides. I researched it. I started taking it. And I found that I didn't benefit from it. So I stopped. Thank you all for listening to this conversation. As I said in the beginning, if you'd like to watch the actual presentation, that is up on my YouTube channel, which is linked in the show notes, but it's also www.youtube.com backslash at Dr. Toplinski. And you can find more information there. If there is a particular topic that I touched on that you'd like to know more about, definitely reach out to me. You can find me at Dr. Toplinski on all social media platforms. And I would love to know what you thought about this conversation in this presentation. If you have a moment and are able to leave a rating and a review for the interlude podcast on Apple, I would be so grateful because that really helps to grow the show, to get it higher in the podcast charts and to bring it to new listeners. Thank you all again for being here and I will see you soon. 